0: Conversations about abortion can sometimes feel somewhat random, like you're shooting from the hip in the dark. You're just throwing out random analogies and questions and talking about different things, hoping that something's going to stick to the wall. In today's episode, we're going to talk all about a consistent roadmap that you can follow to optimize the outcomes of your conversation. Stay tuned. Hi, folks. My name is Cam Cote. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you for tuning in. For those of you who are new, we are a show dedicated to equipping pro-lifers with the tools that they need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion. For those of you who have been longtime followers of the show, thank you a ton for coming back. Um, if you want to check out more content, you can go to our website, ProLifeGuys.com. If you want to help us put more boots on the ground, you can um, do so at Patreon.com slash ProLifeGuys. Give us a like and a review on your favorite podcatcher or on our YouTube channel, Pro-Life Guys Podcast. And let's dive into it. As I mentioned in the opening quote, for a lot of people, and even for myself, when I first got involved doing pro-life outreach, conversations seemed to be somewhat random. You would talk to somebody, they would bring up some hard circumstances, you would talk about basically anything that they wanted to talk about, you would answer whatever questions they had. And then I would feel like I was just kind of Shooting from the hip, trying to just say a a different thing, um, and maybe this is going to work. I'm throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what's going to stick. And this was something that even happened when I first got involved with CCBR. I felt like I got a lot of really good quality training, that my arsenal was filled with really effective arguments, but didn't really know when to use what. And I feel like that's a struggle that a lot of people who are active in the pro-life movement probably encounter. And for me, it even manifests into the way that I was having conversations. I remember back in like, I don't know, 2011, 2012, I was part of our, our Florida mission trip. We'd go down to Florida in the middle of February with a bunch of other Canadian pro-life university students and do some pro-life outreach on campuses in Florida. And I remember it was it was almost a point of, not even almost, it was absolutely was a point of pride for me and a few others, I'm sure, as well. To have the longest conversations possible. I feel like in 2012 especially, I averaged like an hour and, and a half, hour and three quarters in my conversations. With some of them going as long as two to three hours. And I think it's important to note right off the top that sometimes a conversation needs to be two and a half or three hours, particularly if you're unpacking and trying to understand a a personal experience that somebody has encountered with abortion, maybe they've had an abortion, maybe somebody very close to them has had an abortion, and you're working to help them unpack their experience and what has shaped their uh, approach, their, their opinion, their worldview on the abortion issue. And so I'm not saying that conversations can only be quick. I'm not saying that every conversation should be wrapped up in the span of five minutes. But at the time, it was a point of pride that I was almost trying to stretch my conversations out to be as long as possible, that I was not only trying to build the necessary rapport, but I was trying to go above and beyond. And at that point, there were diminishing returns That, that certainly I was very well liked. Uh, Amongst the people that I was talking to, the number of, um, I don't know, handshakes and high fives and laughs that I would get from the conversations that I was having, the number of people that genuinely enjoyed the conversations they were having with me, that was really edifying. And yet it came to a gut check time where I had to ask myself, are my conversations two hours long because they need to be two hours long? Or are they two hours long because I like the sound of my own voice? Are they two hours long because I like being able to trot out every analogy under the sun. I love weaving these masterful 10, 15, 20-minute long analogies that I have to work through, and I'm, I'm just seeing people's eyes either glaze over or, or become riveted by the, the storytelling that I'm doing. Am I doing this for me, or am I doing this for pre-born children? Am I doing it for the mothers and fathers who may be experiencing challenging pregnancies at that moment or may face them in the future? Am I serving the most people as effectively as possible? And how do we find that balance of knowing whether or not we are ready to progress in our conversation or whether we need to invest more time in the current stage? And even deeper than that, what does progression in a pro-life conversation look like? Am I just randomly throwing out a ton of different arguments and hope that one of them upon reception, turns on a little light bulb in their mind? Or do I actually have a conversational strategy that I am working through step by step by step to help people come to the pro-life worldview? Do I have repeatable progression that people can actually follow? Not only myself, but the people that I'm training and working with so that they can know whether they are moving in the right direction or whether they're spinning their tires, or whether they're moving in the wrong direction. And that's what today's episode is all about. How do we plot a course and track the progression of our conversations so that we gauge the effectiveness of our time investment? Because at the end of the day, every moment that you are speaking with the person in front of you is a moment that you are not speaking with somebody else who's walking by. And again, don't get me wrong, this isn't a matter of shooting people through um, a conveyor belt as quickly as possible. This isn't a matter of not investing time and energy um, and rapport and connection and meaningful relationship into the person in front of us. We absolutely need to do that as we're going to talk about not only today, but in the upcoming episodes. But we need to gauge, is what I am saying essential to the fostering of relationship the building of rapport, and the conveying of important, vital, life-saving information. If it is, then great. Invest that time and energy regardless of how long you've been talking to that person. But if it's not, how do we tighten up our conversations so that we are conveying the most efficient relationship, so that we are conveying the most efficient information so that we can not only have as efficient of a breakthrough with that individual or group of people standing before us, but also that we can optimize and maximize the volume of people that we are effectively engaging. So I want to present a multi-part roadmap that can help you gauge the progression of your conversation so that just like if you're plotting a road trip from Toronto to Ottawa or from Calgary to Edmonton or from... I don't know, Austin, Texas to Dallas, Texas or something like that, wherever you're listening from, wherever you live to a place that you like to visit, maybe a place that you've never been to before, what are the steps along the way that you need to walk through so that if you don't get to point B on the map, you know where you went wrong. And once you get to point B on the map, you know where you're going next. And so I want to propose a very, very um, short, roadmap for conversation, and then apply it to a couple of circumstances that you may encounter. And then over the next coming weeks, I'm going to talk about how this applies to more and more situations. And so the end point, we talk about the theory of change way back when uh, my my colleague Peter and I talked to another colleague of ours, um, Blaise Lane, a great friend of mine in our Toronto office at CCBR, um, talk about the theory of change and how important it is on a Strategic level, whether a strategy that's going to be employed for the next 10 years or or 10 decades or whether something that's going to be employed for the next 10 minutes, starting at the end point, where are we trying to draw people? Obviously, in our conversations, we are trying to draw people towards the acceptance of the pro-life worldview. That's our goal. We might have goals that we want to move on to after that. We might be working for an evangelism organization where you're going to continue to, to convey the gospel after that. Maybe you're moving into other issues of contraception or assisted suicide or other cultural topics. For the um, intents purposes of this podcast, we are aiming for the end goal of an acceptance of the pro-life worldview. What is the step before that? Well, the step before that, the heart of the pro-life conversation, the heart of the abortion um, discussion is the humanity of the pre-born. Because in the words of, of a friend and and mentor of mine, Stephanie Gray Connors, and I'm sure that she um, learned it from somebody else as well, whether it's Scott Klusendorf or, or Greg Kokel or somebody else, I don't know who first came up with it, that if abortion does not directly and intentionally kill an innocent living member of the human family, then abortion is not nearly the injustice that pro-lifers project it to be. And no justification for abortion is necessary. If abortion doesn't kill humans, no justification for abortion is necessary. And yet on the flip side, if abortion does kill innocent humans intentionally, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And so the point before the acceptance of the pro-life worldview is the acceptance that a pre-born child is a valuable human but that's not our starting point. If that's all we're talking about and the person that we are talking with is focused on a step before that, the hard situations that mothers and fathers are faced with, then we're going to pass like ships in the night. We're going to be talking about one thing. They're going to be talking about another thing. We're both going to reject the notion that what the other is talking about is important. And we're going to walk away without a changed mind. And who loses out? If pro-lifers are ineffective in our conversations, who loses out if we're not drawing people to the pro-life worldview? It's not you and I. It's not brownie points that we're earning or, or we're, we're losing marks or statistics and our, our sports trading cards are going to have lower statistics on them. No, if we are not having the most effective conversations we can, it's pre-born children and their mothers and fathers who are losing out pre-born children who are dismembered, decapitated, and disemboweled by the act of intentional abortion that's happening 300 times every single day in Canada, 50 million times worldwide every year. If we are not optimizing the engagement of our um, outreach, then it is they who, Who are losing out and by extension through them losing out it's the mothers and fathers who cope with the 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 fallout of this terrible decision for the rest of their lives and so we need to have the best opportunity possible which is why the first step that we have to do as my colleague justina van manen outlines in her book stuck drop a link of that in the description below a much more thorough kind of um discussion on on how to have effective conversations about abortion the first step is bridging the gap. The first step is meeting them where they're at. Because unless we do that, it's very unlikely that we are going to be able to draw them towards the acceptance of the pro-life worldview. And so step one in your conversations is bridging the gap, which we talk about very often on the podcast, which is finding common ground, making an analogy, and asking a question. The common ground allows us to empathize with the hardship that mothers and fathers are faced with, to demonstrate to the person we're speaking with that we too recognize the hardship that mothers and fathers are faced with very often during their pregnancies. We recognize that there are problems that demand solutions. And what we move into, once we've acknowledged that, once we've acknowledged that there is a problem that demands a solution, That's kind of 1A, finding common ground. 1B is um, the analogy, the analogy that demonstrates the principle that terrible situations cannot be remedied by killing innocent humans. We often talk about trotting out the toddler to demonstrate the fact that in light of that terrible circumstance, we cannot alleviate the pain and suffering that the mother, father, and anybody else involved will endure by intentionally killing an innocent human, and the question pivots us from talking about the hard circumstance that they've brought up to talking about the humanity of the preborn. Step two, and so we're going to ask the question: If we're not willing to kill a born child, why a preborn child? From there, it's very likely that the conversation is going to get redirected into, well, they're not human, or it's just a fetus, or just an embryo, or just a zygote, or but they're different. That's what we wanna hear. That is music to our ears. Sure, there are a very small number of people are gonna connect the dots themselves and say, okay, well, I get what you're saying. We can't solve problems by killing people. Abortion is inappropriate. The vast majority of people are gonna connect though with the idea that our media, our government, our education system, so many people, sometimes even our pastors and family members convey to us that abortion doesn't kill a living human. That there's a fundamental difference between pre-born and born children that allows for the act of abortion, but not for the act of infanticide or killing a toddler. And so that's step two. Talking about the humanity of the preborn, We often talk about four very intentionally worded questions that combine both the philosophical component of human rights with the biolog- a biological component of the humanity of the pre-born. And these four questions very often flow directly into our last step, the last stage, which is acceptance of the pro-life worldview. These four questions, number one, could we agree that all living members of the human family get human rights, most especially the human right to not be killed? Yes, the vast majority of people are gonna agree with that first one. Second question then, building towards that, if something is growing, even from one cell to two cells to four cells, isn't it alive? Isn't it alive currently? Not, won't it live or won't it be alive eventually? Isn't it alive? Certainly there are living things that are not growing, but we know that everything that is growing must be alive. And so we get acceptance to that. Sure, we have a living entity. We have a living something from the moment of fertilization. That follows up the third question of the humanity component. If that living organism, we agreed that from the moment of fertilization, we have a living something. If that living something has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? Again, not won't he or she become a living human, not will she sometime in the future be a living human. Isn't he or she, even at that moment, a living member of the human species? Well, yes, because we know that when two um humans reproduce, their offspring is human, just like when two dogs reproduce, their offspring is a dog, two cats, you get a cat, something like that. And so that naturally flows in a syllogism of questions towards the conclusion, the fourth question, doesn't that make abortion an act which intentionally kills that living member of the human species, does not make abortion a human rights violation? For a lot of people that we talk to, by God's grace, they are able to, to see the logic, the simplicity, the common sense of that progression, and accept the pro-life worldview. For some, though, they may admit, well, sure, they're a living member of the human species, but that doesn't—that that isn't what earns you personhood. That isn't what allows you the benefit of protection. You have to be more than just human. And this is a... Um, an extra long version of the roadmap that sometimes you have to go into. If they're talking about, sure, they're human, but not valuable humans. They're not persons. Sometimes you have to talk through the principle of what we call human plus X. Because we as pro-lifers are the inclusive community that says, all you need to be to get human rights is human. No ifs, ands, or buts. You don't have to pass any test. You don't have to achieve uh, a positive result or anything like that. Your, um, your, the, the privilege to not be killed is granted to you simply by the fact that you are a living human. You don't earn it. You don't warrant it. You don't purchase it. It's something that you get regardless of your abilities, regardless of your inabilities, regardless of your age, your anything else. And so when people bring up the differences that exist between born and preborn children, the fact that a preborn child doesn't have a fully developed brain, they may not be conscious or self-aware or able to survive on their own, or the fact that they literally live inside another human being. First of all, instead of debating whether or not those differences exist, because they surely do exist, all we need to do is ask, why does that difference exist? Because of how old they are, the reason why a pre-born child doesn't have a fully developed brain is because they're not old enough to have a fully developed brain. The reason why they're not sentient or self-aware is because of how old they are. The reason why they can't live outside of their mother's womb is because of how old they are. And so when we present abortion in its true form as age-based discrimination, And as we compare that to other forms of discrimination that most people in our society, thankfully, have come to reject discrimination based on skin color, race, religion, creed, gender, or gender identity, we can't kill humans because of these differences. And so if we can't kill humans because of those differences, why is it okay to kill humans because of the difference of age? How is age-based discrimination better than any other form of discrimination? That's an awful lot of stuff packed into a real tight water hose uh, or a fire hydrant kind of spray. Let's apply that. Okay, so I have somebody say to me, I think abortion is appropriate when a mother is living in poverty. She can't even afford to put food on her table. She's living on a street because she can't afford rent. In those situations of abject poverty, mothers should be allowed to access abortion. It's appropriate in that situation. What I'm going to do is step 1A empathize common ground you know what you and I agree that poverty is a very real problem in Canada that demands a solution because of how terrible it is for anyone to endure let alone a mother who is pregnant with child Empathize this is a real problem to uh, one 1b one as it were I'm going to make an analogy to demonstrate that that's not an appropriate solution to that problem you know what imagine, That a mother with a two-year-old child, living in a good situation, a stable home, tragically breaks up with her husband because of a big argument that they have. And they separate. And at the same time, she loses her job. Now she doesn't have the support of her spouse, nor the financial income that would allow her to um, sustain her life and the life of her child. Maybe she's no longer able to pay rent. Maybe she's no longer able to put food on the table. Would we ever suggest that that mother kills her two-year-old to cope with her spiraling financial situation? No, obviously not. The last part of step one is the pivot question. So if we're not willing to kill a born child when their mother is living in poverty, why a pre-born child? To that, the person I'm talking to is probably going to say something to the effect of, but it's just a fetus. Obviously, you can't kill a a two-year-old but we're talking about abortion. It's just a fetus. Moving into part B, uh, part two, um, the human rights argument. I'm going to say, okay, well, you and I could agree that all living members of the human family should get human rights, couldn't we? Well, sure. And if that living, and if something is growing, even from one cell to two cells to four cells, isn't it alive? Well, well, Yeah. Okay, and if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living member of the human family? Yeah. So doesn't that make abortion a human rights violation? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I I can agree that they're living members of the human species, but that's not enough to get human rights. You can't put them equal to the mother. Okay, well, what, what is the difference between a born child and a preborn child? Why why does the mother, why does any born child get human rights but not a pre-born child? Well, because they're not even sentient. They don't know what's happening around them. Okay, and why don't they know what's happening around them? Well, be, because their, their brains aren't developed. Well, why aren't their brains developed? Be, because of how old they are. And so what you're saying is that abortion is allowed because you have to be human plus a particular age, to get human rights? Well, yeah, I guess that is what I'm saying. Okay, well, how is age-based discrimination any better than any other form of discrimination, whether because of skin color or race or religion or gender identity? Why is it okay to kill somebody because of their age, but not okay to kill somebody because of any other arbitrary attribute? Light bulb. For many people, this is the traction point. For many others, they are going to bring up another circumstance. They're going to bring up sexual assault. They're going to bring up um, bodily autonomy. They're going to bring up all sorts of other things. The age of the mother, the the health of the child, whatever it may be. And you're going to walk through the same progression. A mistake that I have made on countless occasions, and I'm sure many other pro-lifers have made as well, is not progressing from step one, bridging the gap, To step two, I have unfortunately spent entire lunch hours at high schools and universities building common ground, making an analogy, asking a question, building common ground, making an analogy, asking a question over and over and over again. And the result of that, without connecting it to the humanity of the preborn, is that people realize that I really care, but they don't accept the principle that this is a living member worthy of human rights. And so every time you're confronted with a different, difficult circumstance, even within the same um, conversation, even if the person throws down to, I think that abortion is allowed, should be allowed in case of sexual assault, when the mom's really young, and when she's living in terrible poverty, and when it's been a, an act of, of t- terrible incest. You know what, I, I want to respond to each and every one of them. But in responding, I'm going to walk through the roadmap with each and every one of them. You know, I agree that sexual assault is one of the most heinous crimes that can be committed in today's day and age. And that we need to do more to prevent it from happening in the first place through education and safe walk programs. I agree that we need to do more to punish the guilty perpetrators of this terrible crime. We need to do more to support the victims, regardless of whether they become pregnant or not you and I agree that there is a massive problem that demands at least one, if not numerous, solutions. Common ground. Imagine if a mother with a two-year-old child was in an abusive relationship. Maybe the abuse didn't begin until after her child was born and her husband lost his job, became an alcoholic and began violently abusing her. What would we do? Well, we get her and her son out of that abusive relationship. But if every moment that she looked at her growing son, she was reminded more and more of her abusive partner, would we ever suggest we kill the two-year-old child because of how much that child reminds her of the traumatic experience that she has lived through? Well, no. And if we're not willing to kill a two-year-old because of the constant reminder that they make to a traumatic experience, why a pre-born child? It's different. This this child is just a fetus. They're really young. They don't know any different. Step two. Could we agree that all living members of the human species get human rights? If something is growing, even from one cell to two cell to four cell, doesn't he or she have? um, Isn't he or she a living organism? Question three: If that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? Doesn't that make abortion a human rights violation? Wait, wait, wait. Well, what about when a mother's life is in danger? You know what? You and I would agree that that would be an absolutely terrifying situation for any mother, regardless of whether she wants to, she's excited about the pregnancy or not. That would be terrifying. Imagine that there was a mother with a born child who contracted a, a terrible disease that had no cure. And if she stayed living in the in the house with her child, she might become infected as well and she might die too. Would we ever suggest that she kills her two-year-old child so that there's less of a risk of her becoming ill and dying? Well, no. And so if we're not willing to kill a born child to try to protect a mother, why are we willing to kill a pre-born child? Why aren't we proceeding with a, a medical procedure that is not going to intentionally target? That preborn child. Why are we going to offer a medical intervention which will save the mother's life without intentionally killing the child? Well, that child doesn't matter because they're not even human. Well, could we agree that if something is growing, it must be alive? That living organism has human parents. Isn't here? You you see the process over and over and over again. We want to walk through these three stages of conversation, bridging the gap, humanity, the preborn, personhood. In that order, we don't want to be starting just with the personhood because we might be building on a faulty foundation if 10, 15, 20 minutes in the conversation, they say that they don't they don't actually think that that entity is a living member of the human species. We might not be getting anywhere if we're talking about the humanity of the preborn if we haven't already empathized with the fact that we have situations that demand responses. so we want to follow that roadmap in that order. Every time. This is something that I do in all of my conversations. I'm 10 years into having conversations as a full-time advocate. I've had more than 10,000 conversations about abortion. This is not a matter of this is elementary and once you become really competent, you can leave the roadmap behind and improvise it entirely. This is what I and my colleagues come back to day after day after day. Every one of our conversations follows this format time and time again. Sure, you might encounter somebody who's never thought about abortion before and therefore has no circumstance that they think of. Sometimes I'll present them on their behalf. You know what? Many of the people I talk to think that abortion is appropriate in these situations. Here's what we would say to them, and we move into the human rights argument from there. Sometimes you might be able to dive straight into the human rights argument, but especially if you're just starting out, walking through common ground analogy question four questions of the human rights argument, and then the human plus X principle, that we don't get human rights based on the fact that we're human and able, or human and a particular age, but rather just because we're human. We are not ableist any more than we are ageist in our discrimination. All members of the human species get the fundamental human right to not be intentionally killed and as as an innocent party. And that's the roadmap. And we're gonna talk through the the coming weeks and months and whatnot. I'm sure that you've tuned into some of the episodes already that we've applied this roadmap over and over again. That's the roadmap that we wanna follow. If your conversations are going off the tracks, figure out where they went off the tracks. Was it because you tried to jump from point one to point three? Was it because you didn't invest enough time in point one or point two or point three? Or is it because you did point one really well and you didn't know where to go from there? and you didn't move into point two, and you just kept talking about point one, this roadmap will help you understand where you've come from, where you're going, and how to optimize every part of your conversation. I hope that makes sense. Thank you all for tuning in very much. Um, and if you have any questions, if you have episode ideas, we'd love to get you um, back in the loop on that. I do apologize. These last couple of weeks have been absolute madness for me. Wrapping up our internship, my my uh, former co-host Peter Boss is on to a, another incredible ministry that I hope to feature um in the coming months. But it's been a, a crazy transition going from two hosts down to one, not just because of the preparation, but because Peter is looking after most of the posting and and so much of the behind the scenes work. And so a huge shout out to Peter Boss. Um, if you're brand new to the show, check out some of our earlier episodes. And and he was the the main man when it came to doing a lot of the after episode um, publishing and and posting and whatnot. And so I do apologize on that. Thank you for sticking with us and uh, really looking forward to some of the conversations that we have coming up here with some of our upcoming guests and all that sort of thing. And so thanks a ton. I hope that you have a great rest of your day, wherever you're at, however many hours or minutes are left in the day before midnight. Um, And may God bless you abundantly.